Why Jerusalem? Recently, some filmmakers were asking that question, and they sought to answer it by making a documentary about the city of Jerusalem. This past September, after five years of production, their documentary was released, but you haven't had a chance to see it yet. It's going around to various cities around the world, and it's making its way very slowly and only into giant screen and IMAX theaters. The film puts you up close and personal with Jerusalem, and it is a breathtaking city. And since we're exploring Christmas on location this December, I want to put you in Jerusalem. What you're about to see is a clip from the movie trailer all about this movie, Jerusalem. And so when you hear this fine female British accent leading us through this magnificent city, that's why. She wants to show you why this place is absolutely incredible. Why Jerusalem? Here you go. How should we approach Jerusalem? A city which for thousands of years has been regarded as the center of the world. Which of its seven gates shall we enter? How shall we navigate its tangled alleyways, shaped by centuries of processions converging on its holy sites? The Church of the Holy Sepulchre, whose grey domes mark the place where many Christians believe Jesus was crucified and resurrected. The massive 2,000-year-old stone platform with its venerated western wall. For Jews, it is where Abraham prepared to sacrifice his son, and Solomon built the first Jewish temple. The top of the stone platform is home to the Dome of the Rock, and Al-Aqsa Mosque, where Muslims believe the Prophet Muhammad was taken in a miraculous night journey and ascended to heaven. Travel back in time to a land steeped in layers of history and cherished as the birthplace of monotheism. Explore this crossroads of the world through the stories of people who call it home.
city that continues to stir the imagination of billions of people. And find out why Jerusalem remains the beating heart of our world today. Sweet, huh? And now you could say you've been to Jerusalem. But why is this such an important city? Well, the narrator has already said that this is a place that captures and continues to stir the imaginations of billions of people. It's the beating heart of our world today. We're continuing our series, Christmas on Location, today by taking a trip south from Nazareth to Jerusalem. You know, why is this place so significant in the Bible's story as a whole? What can we learn about Jesus from focusing our attention on Jerusalem this Christmas? And those are the questions that we're going to work toward answering. But before we even start working on those, I want to back up for a second to ask a big picture question. You know, why would we spend an entire series focused on places, on locations? You know, do locations matter to God? Yes, they do. And I want to let some Old Testament saints with some geographical focus give us some perspective on why this is so. And tucked away at the back of the book of Psalms is a group of psalms called Songs of Ascent. They received this name because singers, people traveling to Jerusalem, would sing these songs on their way up the mountain. Jerusalem is situated on a mountain, hence Songs of Ascent. So they would sing these as they were journeying. So I want to read Psalm 122. It explains why locations matter. As I read, I want you to picture a family or several families traveling together south toward Jerusalem from Nazareth, and they're singing these words. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. There stand the thrones for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. Do locations matter to God? Yes, say these singers, because God has chosen to work in places and specifically according to this psalm in the city of Jerusalem and in the temple, the place where God's presence is inside that city. Locations matter because God has chosen to work in and through his creation. But locations also matter because they provide the setting in which stories are told. You know, we saw this last week with Nazareth. We'll see Nazareth. We'll see this in a moment with Jerusalem, but it's worth saying this explicitly. When we're reading our Bibles, we need to note that authors of the Bible use places 
settings, locations to develop their intentions. So it's important for us to catch what they're doing with these places. This is a very normal practice when storytelling because it helps to put us there. Settings help us to see it and to smell it, to feel it, and to experience it. And all of us do the exact same thing when we tell stories. You know, for instance, I have two options when I want to tell you the story about how Rachel and I got engaged. I can either tell you just the bare facts or I can situate those facts within the setting. You know, so option number one. Jameson Ian asked Rachel Grace to be his wife. She said yes. There was joy. Story done. Simple, straightforward, but it loses something, especially when you hear option number two. I could say Rachel had no idea that this was coming when I asked her to marry me. We had decided we were going to spend a weekend with some friends up in the north woods of Wisconsin. It was the month of October. Have you ever been to the north woods of Wisconsin in the month of October? Beautiful. The place is amazing. So anyway, on October 14th, 2005, Rachel and I went to visit these friends. And on that Friday night, we decided to go on a date by ourselves to our favorite spot. It's called Rose Lake. This place is amazing. We borrowed our friend's SUV because the boat landing road to get there is a little bit difficult to traverse. When we finally got there, something amazing happened. The, cl the clouds parted and the moon came out perfectly over the top of this lake, which was a big deal for my engagement plan. So we, we had already determined that we were going to go do some dancing there at Rose Lake. And I'd put together a playlist of some of our favorite songs, each one of them purposely de de describing some attribute of Rachel that I wanted to draw out and tell her as we were dancing. All of these songs were leading up to one song in particular called Moon Dance by Van Morrison. And so when this song came on, I'm nervous as I can possibly imagine. Remember pulling out the ring, getting down on my knee, saying some lovely words about my lovely girl, and then asking her to marry me. And she was shocked. She was so shocked, she said nothing. So there I am, kneeling, thinking she might be thinking about saying no, but also this was very bad for me because this idyllic, wonderful location came free of charge with tons of little tiny rocks, and I happened to be kneeling on one for the entire time of her deliberation, and it was hurting me. So she finally said yes. I jumped up relieved that she said yes and also that I wasn't in pain anymore, I hugged her, we kissed, and then we continued dancing all the way until the battery on the SUV died <laughs> in the middle of the dark woods. And then we got married. Now, doesn't that story make a whole lot more sense in the context of the setting? When you hear about fall leaves and Rose Lake and music and moonlight, little tiny rocks, a dead battery, the story pops. Locations matter because important things in our lives happen in locations. Locations matter because God has chosen to work in and through his creation. Locations matter because storytellers bring out important aspects of their purpose, their intention by drawing attention to settings. So if locations are neither here nor there for you, which is a geographical idiom, by the way, and you're missing out on a way in which God has determined to work, a dimension of his way of working. That's why we're spending an entire series on locations, places. You know, one author has said places and buildings can and do carry memory and power and hope. 
And this is especially true when we're considering the city of Jerusalem. This is the place where Jesus came as a baby. This is the place where he conducted vital aspects of his ministry. This is the place where he was crucified and resurrected. So I want to highlight three points of interest for us in the city of Jerusalem. Grab your Bible, grab the outline in your weekly welcome, make your way to Matthew chapter 2 if you have your own Bible. I want to get the entire story in front of us, so I'm going to read verses 1 through 12 of Matthew chapter 2. The history and the future of this city are hugely important for us as Christians, so let's explore the Christmas story with a focus on Jerusalem. Follow along as I read, and don't concern yourself, by the way, with the chronology of this. In our Bethlehem message coming up at Christmas Eve, we're going to be focusing on Jesus' birth. That has already happened by the time this story is told, but this story is all about Jerusalem, where Jerusalem is in God's plan. Follow along, verses 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the chief people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Point of interest number one is the city as a whole. This is the central city. Now the word central refers, and you're very well aware of this, to something that is in the center, but it can also refer to something that is the chief, something that is the pinnacle. The city of Jerusalem is the pinnacle, the chief, the center, historically, theologically, and globally. Jerusalem is historically central. You know, before it even got the name Jerusalem, this mountain is the spot where Abraham met a priest named Melchizedek, and where tradition says that he nearly sacrificed his son Isaac. This is the city where David established his royal city. The city of David is Jerusalem. When the Israelites were exiled to Babylon, Daniel prayed toward Jerusalem three times a day because that's where the temple was. The presence of God was in Jerusalem. And this is the place, as I've already mentioned, where a key event took place, the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is the center historically from the Bible's perspective. It's also the center of political ambitions. There's probably not a day that goes by that someplace in our newspapers you can't find the word Jerusalem. 
It's been this way since the time of David. One scholar has said this about Jerusalem. He said it's been besieged, destroyed, rebuilt, destroyed again, rebuilt, besieged, fought over again and again. Everybody wants a piece of Jerusalem. This is one of the main reasons that people are a little bit nervous to spend some time in this city. I remember being a little bit nervous to spend some time in this city when I was there just a little over a year and a half ago. There are several memories, favorite memories of my time in Jerusalem, but two of them stand out that underscore the volatile nature of this place. One day, our whole family was coming back from the Garden Tomb, a place just outside the city where it's likely Jesus was resurrected. And as we were walking our way back in, we were approaching the northern gate, the Damascus Gate, this massive place. And as we were entering it, there was a protest being, being formed. A group of people were gathering, and it was very clear this was going to get dicey pretty quickly. And so we as a family moved very quickly through the middle of this, got through the city gate into the city, and just as we did, Israeli soldiers were flying the other direction, opposite us to go take care of these protesters, with machine guns on their necks. When we saw the guns, we started moving a little more quickly, the opposite direction. It's kind of a volatile place. Just a couple days later, just our last day in Jerusalem, my brother-in-law Adam and I wanted to go back for one more souvenir. I wanted to get a mug in Jerusalem to put my coffee in at home. This was very important to me. And so we used our last little bit of time to race through these compact little alleyways, trying to put off the persuasive shopkeepers. Think Aladdin in terms of the setting. That's what this was like, running through these streets and trying to get to this location. And the whole time that we're running, there's an alarm, a siren going off. And it's just making us move more quickly. No idea what it was for. We got what we came for. We went back, and when Rachel saw me, she said, where did you guys find shelter during the air raid? The air raid? Apparently, Iran was targeting the city streets through which we were running. Kind of a volatile place. Everybody wants a piece of Jerusalem. It's been this way for a long time. It's central historically. Jerusalem is also central to God's purposes. This is one of the major points that Matthew is trying to make by including the story of the Magi, which takes place in the city of Jerusalem. You know, it's interesting to note in Matthew 2.1, where the Magi are introduced, that Matthew tells us nothing about them. You know, we could have endless debates about who these guys were. Were they kings? Were they wise men? We could talk about where they came from, the Orient, or from someplace else. We could talk about how many, one, two, three, maybe more of them. But Matthew is totally unconcerned about these details. He leaves all of them out of his story. As you're reading along in your Bible and you notice a glaring major omission like this, it should cause us to say, hey, since Matthew isn't going to tell us that stuff, what is Matthew interested in telling? What does Matthew say here? Take a look at the second half of Matthew 2.1. Matthew writes, during the time of King Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Short and sweet. Let me, let me give you two geographical observations about this verse. You know, first, the Magi, whoever they were, came from the east, which most likely leads to the conclusion that these guys weren't Jewish. They were Gentiles. Second, they came from the east to Jerusalem. 
Now, why on earth would these Gentile magi trek halfway across the then-known world through all sorts of nasty and scary desert conditions to go to the Jewish city of Jerusalem? Matthew tells us. He says they've come to worship the one born king of the Jews. This is pretty strange. We've got Gentiles coming from a distant part of the world to the city of Jerusalem to worship the king of the Jews and to present him gifts? Now, since all of you have the Old Testament more or less memorized, let me ask you, where in the Old Testament can you find anything that puts these pieces together, all of these different elements? What do you got? Well, amazingly, there is a place. In Isaiah chapter 60, Isaiah writes some pretty incredible words. Look at these words, verses 1 through 6. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar and your daughters are carried on the hip. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To you the riches of the nations will come. Herds of camels will cover your land. Young camels of Midian and Ephah and all from Sheba will come bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. Interesting, huh? In this passage, we've got Gentiles coming from a distant part of the world to the city of Jerusalem to worship the king of the Jews and to present him with gifts. Here's Matthew's point. Jerusalem is the place, the central place where the nations will come to worship the one true God. And before Jesus has even had a chance to dirty his first diaper, here they are. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the central city in God's purposes for the entire world. If you fast forward a little bit in the story to the end of the story where Jesus has already been raised from the dead, in Acts 1, Jesus gives his disciples a geographical mission strategy. And a similar point is made from a different angle. He he says this, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. At the beginning of the story, the Magi come from the east to Jerusalem to worship Jesus, but here in Acts, the disciples go out from Jerusalem to proclaim the gospel of Jesus to the nations all the way to the very ends of the earth. In both cases... Jerusalem is at the center of God's plan, God's purposes for worldwide redemption. And all of this geography leads to an incredibly important insight and application for us. God invites people from all the nations into his family. God invites people from all the nations into his family. No one is excluded on the basis of ethnicity or gender or class. God in his grace calls people from everywhere to come to Jerusalem to meet Jesus. 
Which means this Christmas season, we could see people stream into Jerusalem, so to speak, metaphorically, to meet Jesus. Christ-following people here at Christ Community Church could be a part of proclaiming his redemption to the nations, to people who aren't in his family yet. We have several opportunities over the next several days with our Christmas Eve services to bring family, friends, neighbors, co-workers who need to hear the good news of Jesus, to be included in God's family because no one is excluded from God's family when they put their trust in Jesus. That is incredible. God has been working this for centuries to go into Jerusalem and then out of Jerusalem to the nations. Jerusalem is central in God's purposes. It's central historically and theologically and also globally. You know, hopefully you saw the map at the beginning of the Jerusalem movie trailer. Did you, did you notice that? Did it catch your attention? Here it is again. This is a very interesting map. This one's a little different than the one that they showed in the video. This map was made in 1581 AD, and it places the city of Jerusalem at the center of the entire world. This is nearly 100 years after Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492, and even though they know of the then-known world expanding, they still see Jerusalem as geographically, globally central. And there's actually an element in our story here in Matthew 2 that substantiates this map maker's, or if you want to be really smart, this cartographer's global perspective. I've often wondered as I've read this story, man, how did, how did God put all the pieces together to get these guys to Jerusalem? How did they find their way to this baby? How did they travel to this specific city? Look at Matthew 2, 2. These guys arrive and they're talking to King Herod and they ask, where is the one who's born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. They followed the star of wonder, star of light, star of royal beauty bright, and it guided them to the city of Jerusalem. A global event orchestrated by God. Here's what struck me as I considered this incredible detail. God's great plan of redemption, centuries in the making, finds expression right here as he uses the heavens to direct the steps of the Magi to Jerusalem. Folks, God is amazing. He providentially and sovereignly orchestrates all of the details of history to accomplish his great purposes. And even though he does that on that scale, he does this on a smaller scale, though not a less important scale, in all of our lives. When I think about this star, God's providence demonstrated through the star that led them to Jerusalem and then on to Bethlehem, it puts all of my questions and my struggles and my confusion in its proper perspective. And whatever each one of us is facing, and no matter how out of place it all seems, whether job loss or struggles within your job or health concerns or relationship conflict or a murky future or weariness from just life's stuff, God is at work to bring about his purposes in your life. God is at work to orchestrate all of this stuff together to bring about his purposes in our lives. That is one of the huge themes of the entire Bible, and it's one of the specific themes of the Christmas story as it relates to this star leading these guys to Jerusalem. 
globally central, historically central, theologically central. That's the city as a whole. Now let's go visit some sites within the city. Two more points of interest. Here's point of interest number two, a phony palace. A phony palace. As I was watching TV a couple weeks ago, I actually learned something. I encountered an insight into the ancient world. I don't know about you, but it doesn't happen very often for me that when I'm watching TV, I'm actually learning something. But as I watched this, of all things, a Geico commercial, I learned something. I don't know if you've seen these Geico campaigns recently. They're assuming that we all know their slogan very, very well. So they've got these commercials where two people are sitting together, and one of them sees an ad go by for Geico. Their well-known, apparently overly well-known line, you can save up to 15% on car insurance. And so this person sees this for the first time and says, wow, did you know that you could save up to 15% on car insurance? And the other person sitting next to him says, well, of course you can. And like, no big deal. Everybody knows that. And so the person who's just learned this to stump their know-it-all friend comes up with some kind of question. And this guy says, in this commercial in particular, the one that I was watching, he says, did you know that the ancient pyramids were actually a mistake? And right then it cuts away to half-constructed pyramids and a drawing of square buildings. They've built the wrong thing. And the guy rightly then says, oh, no. Well, clearly. So what ancient world insight did I gain from watching this silly, stupid commercial? This. Ancient architecture, building programs in the ancient world were very expensive. They proceeded extremely slowly, and you couldn't reverse your mistakes once they happened. Now, King Herod, builder extraordinaire, is a guy who knew this stuff well. He was incredibly gifted as an architect. Matthew introduces us to him very early on in our text in verse 1 as a matter of setting. He just says it's during the time of King Herod this happens. But we get to know him somewhat well throughout the course of the story, and it's not a very good picture. King Herod had some good qualities. He was a great palace builder. And as a result, he had several of these palaces all over the country of Israel. He had palaces built just south of Jerusalem in Herodium. He had one built on the Mediterranean Sea at Caesarea. He had one built in Jerusalem itself called the Praetorium. It could be argued that his most famous, most magnificent palace of all was at Masada, the Dead Sea. This is the location in the Jerusalem trailer when the camera's coming over the top and you're, over, and you're looking down on these fountains, these three-tiered fountains of one of the most amazing sights in all of Israel. Seeing these things put there just for beauty, etched into the side of a mountain for the sake of beauty. They had these housing facilities on top of this place. It was a fortress palace. And so they could hide out there in these housing facilities. They were able to obtain and store water in the middle of the desert. Absolutely incredible. He was a genius. He had beautiful, beautiful palaces, but his methods of operation were ugly. They were wicked. He's purported to be one of the most brutal rulers around his time, killing at various points in his reign multiple of his own family members, including his wife and two sons. We get little bits and pieces of his brutality in Matthew chapter 2. Look at verse 3. King Herod hears of a rival king of the Jews, and Matthew says he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Rather than anticipating God's king, Herod smells a threat to his way of life and to his throne. In verses 7 and 8, Herod starts plotting by hosting a secretive meeting. 
He delegates this task to the Magi, and then he deceives them by saying that he wants to go with them at some point to worship this new king. And then finally, in verse 16, we learn of his fury, which is quickly demonstrated in his genocide of the boys of Bethlehem. Herod operates out of fear, and as a result, he plots and deceives and finally lashes out with heinous killings. And it's for these reasons that I call this a phony palace. It's a fraudulent palace because kings in Israel were given the responsibility to lead their people in God-honoring ways, and Herod wasn't doing that. This nation was to be a light to the world, showing the world God's way of operating, designed by God himself. The king, in particular, was supposed to be a person well instructed in the ways of God, walking with him and living an exemplary life. Herod wasn't this guy. He had a beautiful palace, but it was concealing wicked, wicked, wicked ways. It was a phony palace. He's the perfect foil for the kind of king that Jesus came to be. Jesus was the kind of king, is the kind of king, who embodies all that God wanted for his kings in Israel. I love the way that Matthew tells this story because right when you get the introduction of King Herod and you get the introduction of the Magi, he starts working these contrasts. The way that they respond to the news of this king, the Magi respond with submission and with generosity and Herod responds out of fear. As we consider Jesus in Jerusalem this Christmas, what is your response to him? I've told you this story before, but I think it's worth telling again. The late John Stott was a pastor in England for many years, and at one point he had a meeting with the very famous musician Paul Simon. Simon is the one who initiated the conversation because he respected John Stott and his Christian leadership for so many years. And so the two of them sat together, chit-chatting for a little while before Simon finally got to the purpose of this meeting, for him at least, which was to complain about a specific group of people in the church. Presumably, John would have had some opportunity to do something about this. I don't know what Simon was after, but John Stott, this godly old man, this wonderful pastor, paused him. And he said, I'm more interested in what you think of Jesus. Because Stott knows, knew, he's passed away, Stott knew that every single person needs to draw conclusions about Jesus and submit to Jesus. I'm more interested in what you think of Jesus. What do you think of Jesus? How do you respond to Jesus? Herod responded out of fear. He was disturbed. The Magi, they were overjoyed at the sight of Jesus. What is your response to Jesus? This baby in a manger, this baby who will soon visit Jerusalem, have you determined to submit to him and to follow him? And if you have, are you living daily in and out of the normal stuff of life in obedience to his loving and gracious reign? Now, our response to Jesus is a matter of daily obedience to his rule in our lives, responding to the king the way the king is supposed to be, in his palace, lovingly and graciously reigning. We've taken in the central city as a whole. We've stopped by the palace. Now let's briefly take one more stop in Jerusalem. This is our final point of interest. It's the true temple. 
There is only one other scene in the Christmas story that takes place in Jerusalem, and that's recorded for us in Luke chapter 2. So if you have your own Bible, you can make your way to Luke 2. The story actually proceeds from verses 22 all the way through 38. And I'm not going to read them for us now, but I do want to point out that everything that happens in those verses happens inside the temple in Jerusalem. Take a look at verse 22. It's the thing that gets the story rolling. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him, that is Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. They did this at the temple. And the key thing to know about the Jerusalem temple is that it's the place where God's presence is. Or another way to say this, a way I like it a whole lot better, it's the place where heaven and earth meet. It's a building on the ground in a location, but God's presence fills it up. Heaven and earth meet there. This is a seriously, seriously important location. And it was probably a magnificent looking building. The whole complex was amazing. This this is where the priests met with God. This is where they worshipped him, where they prayed, where they presented sacrifices to honor God and to thank God and receive forgiveness for their sins. All of this stuff went on inside this temple in Jerusalem. And Mary and Joseph bring their baby, who's just eight days old, into this temple, and something incredible happens. These two people, named Simeon and Anna, they give praise to God when they see the baby Jesus because they recognize that this baby is the agent of God's redemption. Catch this. In his incarnation... Jesus becomes the place where heaven and earth meet. God in the flesh. Heaven and earth here in this baby. Jesus is in this sense then the true temple. He's the one now through whom we receive access to God. His very presence even indwelling us by his spirit. He's the one that we worship. He's the one that we pray to. It's through him that we receive forgiveness for our sins. Now, Simeon and Anna didn't put all this stuff together when they saw this little baby, but what they did recognize, because God revealed it to them, is that this baby, Jesus, met all of their expectations. In verse 38, Luke connects Anna to those who were looking forward, expecting the redemption of Jerusalem. In verse 25, he says that Simeon was waiting For the consolation of Israel. Both of these phrases in shorthand refer to the hope that God would come through on his promises to his people. And that expectation, Simeon and Anna's expectation, fueled their waiting, their trusting that God was going to come through. And what I love about Simeon and Anna is that their waiting consisted of worship. Simeon and Anna knew that their only hope was in the mercy and grace of God. And they'd experienced it first through the physical temple, that location. But they recognized that they would see it now in the true temple, this baby. You know, their advent, which is another word for waiting, a word we've been throwing around over the last several weeks, their advent consisted of worship. Of what has your advent consisted this Christmas season? Advent is supposed to be a time of reflection, a time of worship, a time of prayer, a time of great blessing, but it often becomes a time of great busyness and self-centeredness. 
That's what it's been for me this Advent season. These last several weeks have been busy and crazy and distracting, and I need to recalibrate. And just brushing up next to Simeon and Anna for a moment inside this place, seeing them worship, giving praise and thanks to God, helps me to remember that this is a time of prayer, a time of worship, a time of waiting for God's grace in my time of need. As we reflect on this location, this place in Jerusalem and its fulfillment in Jesus, the true temple, it's appropriate for all of us to pray for a greater sense of our own spiritual need because God doesn't come to the self-sufficient. God doesn't come to the self-sufficient. He comes to those who are waiting on him to meet their deepest needs. So right now, and even in the next several days leading up to Christmas, I want to encourage you to pray for a greater sense of your spiritual need, to spend time worshiping Jesus for the access that he's provided to God, for the wonderful good gifts he gives through prayer, for the gracious gift of forgiveness of sins. All of this coming from this manger, this baby, God is in the manger. Now, as we close together, I want to invite our, invite our bands to come and to prepare to lead us in worship because Christmas provides a very unique opportunity to live a worshipful life. And the Magi at the very beginning of the story came to Jerusalem to worship. Simeon and Anna at the end of our tour were in the temple praising and worshiping a worshipful life focused on Jesus. Jesus. 